Well, unless you have been uh, living in hiding for the last uh, decade or so, and you've had some contact with uh, popular culture, you probably know that one of the themes very popular today in novels and literature and all over the screen is the theme of the apocalypse. The apocalypse, the end of the world. And many of the titles are really a dead giveaway. Titles such as The Walking Dead, Soldiers or Zombies, The World of Z, or All That Remains, a a post-apocalyptic survival thriller. Uh, we, We are living in an age infatuated with ideas about the end of the world. And so many are the variations about how the world might come to an end. Who will survive and who will die? Uh, Will it be an alien invasion? Will humanity be taken by a virus? Will it be a nuclear holocaust? And and what's going to bring about the end of this world? What's going to be the cause? Is it going to be a political party? Will it be a whole nation? Uh, Perhaps it's uh, to no surprise to us, in 2012, in a global survey conducted by Statistics Research Department asking people if they believe the world would end in their own lifetime, the U.S. as a country tied for first, along with the country of Turkey, in the percentage of people who believe the end of the world would come in their own lifetime. 22%, almost a quarter of people, believe the, the, the world would end or will end in their lifetime. Maybe it will. What's perhaps most striking is is not only that many Christians have fallen prey to, it seems, strange ideas about the end of the world or end times, but the one view that's not represented in our culture today is the biblical one, a a biblical view. And we know the church does not need uh, Walt Disney uh, or... Warner Brothers, to tell us how things will unfold. The scriptures reveal these things to us. And as we continue in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, here in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul gives us some insight and a piece of that larger picture of God's unfolding story of redemption and history. And so he zeroes in on this very matter. And so our text is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 1 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Let's give our attention to God's word. Paul continues and he writes this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, 
whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Though Paul has already mentioned the the second coming, the the return of the Lord Jesus, uh, through his writing to this church, in fact, he's mentioned it, as I've noted before, in all five chapters of the first letter, for different purposes, he has mentioned the return of the Lord. He has also mentioned it in the previous chapter of this letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Yet here we see Paul's most thorough description and explanation to these Christians, to this particular church, about the coming of Christ and the events that are going to precede it. And it seems clear that from Timothy's report, as we recall, Timothy had been sent by Paul to exhort Uh, the church and encourage them and to report back that these believers have questions. They have concerns about the coming of Christ. And Paul, in fact, seems a little bit surprised by it. As he says in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? As if most, if not all, of what we have heard in this chapter, in these 12 verses, Paul has already instructed them in. And important for us is Paul's pastoral concern. This is Paul, a shepherd, speaking into a particular congregational circumstance, addressing the return of the Lord. So this is not Paul, if you will, in the classroom, uh, addressing the next theological subject, which just happens to be eschatology or the last days. Rather, this is Paul writing and speaking into a particular situation, So Paul's not providing understanding and instruction just for instruction's sake. Paul knows a right theology leads to a right thinking. And a right thinking usually leads to a right behaving. And a right behaving usually leads to a right feeling and emotion and a sense of stability in mind and heart. A statement to grab onto is accurate theology helps to produce stable-minded believers. Accurate theology helps to produce stable-minded believers. And that's very much what Paul is after for these Christians. If you look at the opening verses, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, thinking that the day of the Lord has come. World events, life circumstances can can destabilize us at times and shake us. These words, has come. Don't be quickly shaken thinking that the day of the Lord has come. They're important words. They can mean imminent or impending or is at hand. Not necessarily that they had missed the day of the Lord, but but that the day of the Lord is, is upon them, is at hand. Paul is correcting their thinking so that they understand that the return of the Lord may be long in delay. 
And here we are in the 21st century. It has been long in delay, uh, looking back uh, uh, upon the last 2,000 years to this Thessalonian church. That means if it's long in delay, they're going to need to persevere. They're going to need to know what it is to remain firm in the faith. Now, in certain ways, their alarm or their potential worry about the imminence of Christ's coming is understandable. Uh, For one, they are human. We're human. Our, Our faith isn't as firm as we sometimes think it is. Uh, the, the, the access we have today about what is happening in the world immediately uh, can, can stir us up, can uh, shake us. It's a, it can be a lot to take in. And not only are they facing false teachers stirring up rumors that the day of the Lord is at hand upon them, but what Paul has already taught them face-to-face when he was with them And what he's reminding them here is full of cosmic and spiritual forces, language uh, at work all around them. Uh, Paul Paul mentions this great rebellion, this apostasy. He mentions a man of lawlessness proclaiming to be God. And and that this man of lawlessness is uh, the working of Satan himself, satanic power. He mentions a great delusion among those perishing, and the breath of Jesus Christ that destroys. So this is is a language reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 6, where our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, cosmic powers, heavenly realities. And all of this should remind us that we as Christians are part of a grand redemptive drama in history. And we are in some ways mere onlookers, the audience looking in to the center of what is happening, which is a spiritual reality. So Paul's kind of pulling back the curtain to reveal to us the center of the drama of those last days. It's a spiritual reality. And I think this is important. God's victory, um, our assurance of faith, In these last days, in those final days, it doesn't ultimately depend upon our own weak, finite abilities, but upon the power of God. This is a work of God. We're we're being brought into a spiritual reality here, spiritual warfare. And and so as Paul pulls back the curtain, what do we see and learn? Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That day is the day of the Lord, which Paul mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he mentioned in the last verse, the previous verse. The day of the Lord is synonymous with the day of Christ's coming, his appearing. And Paul says that day, the day of the Lord, the appearance of Christ will not occur until two things precede, until two things occur. One is this rebellion or apostasy, that must take place, and two, this man of lawlessness or man of sin who functions by the activity of Satan. 
he must be revealed. Well, as we hear this, questions may uh, surface in our minds. What is this rebellion? What is this apostasy that Paul's talking about? When is it going to be? Uh, Who or what is this man of lawlessness? What will all of this look like? Consider these things, the rebellion, the apostasy, and the man of lawlessness. We should recognize there's a difference between apostasy and paganism. A pagan is someone who does not know the Lord and does not profess to do so. But apostasy exists when those who once professed belief renounce that faith in rebellion against God. That's what Paul is referring to, that rebellion or that apostasy. And we see the spirit of rebellion and apostasy as a thread that runs through the scriptures running all the way back, really, to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They rebel against the Lord. And it is by, as we know, the influence of Satan himself, who comes disguised as a serpent to deceive. And that thread continues through the Old Testament, but it really begins to uh, mount in the period of the prophets, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, and Daniel. And so we see this kind of rebellion and and figures that rise uh, to take the place of God. In Isaiah chapter 14, for example, we hear these words from the king of Babylon. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This rebellion continues in the days of Daniel, who not only describes another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, as one full of pride and in rebellion against God, but Daniel, importantly, goes on to describe a particular figure in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, who, quote, commits transgression that makes desolation. Here's what Daniel writes. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the Lord, against the God, the true God of all gods. This is a king, Daniel is saying, that's going to set himself up as God. Many people believe that this occurred around 167, 170 B.C. as the Syrian king Antiochus the fourth, Antiochus Epiphanes, brought a desecration upon the temple in Jerusalem. Historically, he entered the temple, he set up an altar to Zeus, he offered sacrifice and offerings upon it, and this was an event known as the abomination that causes desolation. And while there's perhaps historical fulfillment in that event which Daniel records, what's important is that Jesus himself picks up this language, Daniel's very words, in Matthew 24. In the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus looks out with his disciples upon uh, the the temple and the the surrounding structures and says, uh, not one stone will be left upon another. This will be uh, destroyed, all of it. And then Jesus says this, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, 
then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Here you have in Jesus' day this great rebellion and apostasy of of the Jews rejecting the Lord Jesus himself and, and the judgment of God coming through the Romans who desecrate the temple. A momentous event in God's unfolding purposes. This new epic, this new age has dawned. The kingdom of Christ has come. So we see whether it's in Isaiah's day or Daniel's day or the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry, we see rebellion occur. We see figures exalting themselves as gods. And not only Isaiah and Daniel and the Lord Jesus, but now Paul writing to this church, is picking up very similar language. Notice how Paul describes the man of lawlessness in verse 4. This is one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Very similar language to Isaiah and Daniel and the Lord Jesus. So we see this recurring theme of apostasy and rebellion and figures who rise up against the Lord and in place of God. Yet as we consider these verses, uh, this apostasy, its nature, the extent of it, uh, the precise identity of this lawless one, it still seems to remain somewhat mysterious. Which is why, throughout history, the history of the church, there have been many claims as to the identity of this figure. In the early church, many viewed numerous Roman emperors as the lawless one. With the rise of Islam in the 7th century, believers began identifying Muhammad as the lawless figure. With the advent of the Protestant Reformation, some were calling the Pope the lawless one, or Antichrist. The Pope and Roman church did not sit idly by. They responded by calling some of the reformers, like Martin Luther himself, the man of lawlessness. In more modern history, throughout the 18th to 20th centuries, many Christians have claimed that such political leaders as Napoleon, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin as the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist. All of this is, I think, an important reminder of the church's limitation in interpreting the times in which they live and God's providential purposes throughout. It should humble us as God's people. But it is also to point us to where our confidence, where our stable footing really lies for our faith and for our future. Paul doesn't tell the Thessalonians the precise identity of this important figure. And I think it's in the wisdom of God himself. Their confidence and their hope is to be in something, someone greater than their own ability to understand the times. If the Lord wanted to reveal the precise identity of this figure, he certainly could have. Their confidence is to be in the Lord. That's where Paul points them. He is the one who has the victory. So he says in verse 8, 
though there is a restraining going on. Either the Lord himself, some suggest the archangel Michael, uh, restraining this spirit of evil or the evil one, the man of lawlessness. He eventually is going to be revealed. And so he says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That, that is what should be giving us stability and hope, confidence. The same word, the breath of his mouth, the same word, the same breath that brought into existence all of creation. The same word and breath that sustains all things. As the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus himself in chapter 1, verse 3, that he, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, by his powerful word. The same word and breath that said to the storm on the Sea of Galilee, peace, be still. The same word that said to Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus, come out. The same word, the same breath that goes forth to redeem people through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. This voice, this breath, will destroy and bring to nothing the lawless one. Paul's point is quite practical. This is a subject that certainly one can dig into deeply in numerous passages of Scripture, the day of the Lord and what precedes it. But Paul's point is practical, both for the Thessalonians and certainly for us. On the one hand, he does not want them worried or alarmed, thinking that it's somehow their own ability to detect and to identify the lawless one or to understand precisely God's eschatological or end-time timetable for them to know security. That's, he's driving that home. Their, their security isn't in their own understanding. It is in Jesus Christ who conquers. On the other hand, I think if the Thessalonians and, and we are paying close attention to Paul's words, they would recognize Paul is pointing also to a kind of vigilance in our Christian living. Jesus spoke about this in places as well, to keep watch. That's evidence of, of a person who is uh, intentional and deliberate and sincere in their following after Jesus Christ. We need to be vigilant. And here's why. Because while the lawless one will be revealed in God's time and indeed conquered, the spirit of lawlessness lurks around. The spirit of lawlessness, the spirit of the lawless one, is already at work in our midst. Verse 7, he says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Two important passages for us to store away. One we have heard read in Revelation 12 for the New Testament reading of Scripture where we're told that there was a great war in heaven. Michael, the archangel of God, fought against that ancient serpent called the devil. And the great deceiver was defeated 
And where did he go? He was thrown down to the earth, we're told. And there was a loud voice in heaven that said, Now salvation and the kingdom and authority of Christ has come. His people have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Rejoice, O heavens. But then these words, But woe to you, O earth, for the devil has come in great wrath because he knows his time is short. There is a redemption that has been accomplished. The evil one has been defeated. Salvation has come. It has been accomplished. He was defeated, but he is not yet destroyed. His spirit is at work. And what is his central goal? Deception. That is what he is about. To deceive. That's what Paul says in verse 10. With all wicked deception, blinding them to the truth. The other text to store away that is very important and relevant here is 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. This is what the Apostle John says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Antichrist and the man of lawlessness seem to be synonymous, the same figure. And their spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the lawless one, is present at work. And it's centrally characterized by unbelief in Jesus Christ. Paul says in the closing verses that that people are living in deception, deception, refusing to love the truth. Those who are perishing are deceived, blinded by uh, the God of this age and the spirit of Antichrist. They refuse to love the truth, which means the people of God are the opposite. The people of God are people who love the truth. They love the word of God. They love the gospel of salvation. That is the evidence a central evidence. And that would be my encouragement and exhortation to you today, uh, to be looking to the Lord, seeking Him, that He would be renewing in all of us a desire and love for His Word, a love for His truth, and that we would be taking the opportunities, taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives to us to sit under His Word, whether that's in worship on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, whether that's in Sunday school, Uh, to teach the Word of God to us, whether it's on our own private devotional lives, that He be uh, renewing uh, that love for His Word and for the truth. Uh, A number of years ago, about 12 years ago, a friend of mine uh, gifted to me a a CD. It was a a CD, uh, a tribute to C.S. Lewis, number of songs. And probably my favorite is by uh, the artist Robin Mark. And it's entitled, When It's All Been Said and Done. 
And it goes this way. When it's all been said and done, there is just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done and all my treasures will mean nothing, only what I have done for love's rewards will stand the test of time. Lord, your mercy is so great that you look beyond our weakness, that you found purest gold in miry clay, turning sinners into saints. I will always sing your praise here on earth and in heaven after. For you've joined me at my true home. When it's all been said and done, you're my life when life is gone. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you that you have made known to us uh, even uh, mysterious things. Things that we don't fully grasp, but by your grace you have um, pulled back the veil, pulled back the curtain for us to to peer in, to get a glimpse uh, of in this case, your return, the coming of Jesus Christ, the consummation and end of history. We pray, O oh Lord, that, that you would turn the attention of our hearts to Jesus Christ, to the victory that we have in him, a victory that we already taste of now and that we will know fully at your return when we will see Jesus Christ face to face. Lord, we pray that you would grow in our hearts a love for the truth of your word. For your word, Lord, speaks into every circumstance, every issue of our lives. So we pray that you would give us a hunger for it. And give us a hunger for you. For we pray these things with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.